Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy. Promise we're talking about this for a reason. Um, one of the things that we're going to look at this morning, we're in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be continuing in Mark 11. And there's this interesting way where Christians more recently, when you discuss the Bible or spiritual matters, it's kind of like there's a cultural moment happening, and I'm not making any judgment on it, good or bad, it just is. We have lots of kind of cultural moments that are happening. And it feels like to discuss spirituality and who Jesus is, you can either reference movies that are 20 years old. You're like, have you seen The Matrix? There's a red pill and a blue pill. And like that's a way of kind of talking about culture, or it's just a full cultural retreat to come back to like these stories. And we use words and phrases that are familiar within like the safe walls here. So I can talk about hedge of protection and covered in the blood of the lamb, because that doesn't make sense out here. It's a lot of people without that, but it makes sense here. And so we can have these spiritual conversations behind a wall. And uh, it's certainly a thing that happens. Lots of people do it. What I want to look at today is that this is very much not what Jesus is doing. That when Jesus is having conversations with people, he isn't like, hey, let's get away from all of these heathens that do all these things. Let's come over here and talk about sacred Jewish scriptures, and we'll just kind of reference those. He's referencing them, but they exist in the cultural zeitgeist in a very different way, much more like pop music and pop movies. And so when Jesus is making these references uh, one of my favorite things to do to, to, I think, really get the New Testament is actually to go uh, study rap lyrics. Rap lyrics, more than any other kind of musical form, has so many references and callbacks. Every line is packed with meaning. And so you can listen to a song and read the lyrics and say, oh, okay, yeah, I like it. But if you know what the references are, it takes on a whole different meaning much deeper, much more uh, rich, and that's the Bible. It's not like you can't read the Bible, but if you don't get all the references and all the callbacks and all the things that they're talking about, or you misunderstand what the references are, you're going to have an interpretation of it that's not wrong, but it's not as rich and full as it could be. Um, And so we're going to look at some of the different ways that Jesus is doing that. All right, so we're going to start in Mark 11. Uh, This chapter has some biggies. We got the justification for agro roid raid Jesus uh, turning over the tables in the temple. That happens in here. Uh, We have the fig tree, which is one of the craziest stories in all of the Bible. And in a moment as a youth pastor, I'm least proud of. Uh, I remember talking with a student, and the student was like, yeah, like, there's all kinds of crazy things Jesus does. Like that one time he just cursed the fig tree and killed it. And I'm like, yeah, but that, didn't, that was in the Gospel of John. That's not in like, the Synoptic Gospels. And he's like, yeah, it is. I'm like, no, I don't think so. I'm attending seminary currently. And, <laughs> and get ready for this. He's like, no, the pastor talked about it this morning. <laughs> yep, proud of that. Um, so, we're going to look at kind of all of this things happening in Mark 11. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, great. Let's look at Mark 11. One, if not, it's okay. We have the words on the screen. I know not everyone can read it, but, you know, let its presence cover you. Okay. 
As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied it, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there said, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So stopping there for a second, just kind of laying the scene, uh, to take a step back and kind of where the road we've walked to get here is that Jesus has been uh, doing most of his ministry in the northern part of uh, what is kind of present-day Israel. So he's been up around Nazareth, where he's from, and he's spent a lot of time in Capernaum, even cities that are not specifically Jewish, and on the kind of fringes of the uh, predominantly Jewish areas up there. And so this goes into a lot of his work. One of the, the aspects of the Gospels that I love is Jesus only rewards the faith and complements the faith of people that are not Jewish, the people that are not a part of his kind of religious identity and personhood. It's, it's always the faith of others. And he says, this is great. And, and we kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus has begun a turn about three chapters earlier from that area down to Jerusalem, which is absolutely the epicenter of everything that is Jewish in the world at this time. They're going to the temple. And, and this is at a time, this is during the Passover meal, where people from all over the region are all going to Jerusalem. And one of the things that more than just kind of understanding it or studying it, it's really helpful when you go through the Bible to, to sit with how would it feel? Where would I experience this in my body if I was a part of the story? And one of the feelings that, that I wanted to get at is to have these kinds of conversations where Jesus is saying this Jewish religious system and this Roman military government thing that are happening, they are killing us and there has to be another way. That's fine out here. But going here is very different. You can have lots of conversations here about the U.S. government and what a mess they're making of everything. It's a different conversation in Washington, D.C. And so that is the feeling that these disciples who are going with Jesus are like, is he going to pull back on this message or not? And what we see is Jesus is actually ramping up the message the closer and closer he gets. Um, and one of the things, too, is there's lots of different ways we understand this triumphal entry is kind of what it's always called and referred to, uh, Jesus coming in. But Jesus was coming in on a baby donkey. And so uh, Scott has a clip that he's used, that my friend Scott has used this number of times. I found a different one. But just to capture the insanity of what it was that Jesus was doing, um, yeah, that it wouldn't have looked like, oh, we just don't get it. It was super regal. And yeah, it had some allusions certainly to David, but it was purposely comical. That this image was supposed to invoke the insanity of the whole thing. 
if you look at what Jesus has done in saying, I'm the Messiah, and that this leader, this ruler of Jerusalem, of the Jews is coming, and yet he says, but I'm going to suffer and die. This is the image that puts those two things together. If you don't understand what was kind of predicted about the Messiah and what Jesus said he was going to do with the Messiah, that juxtaposition of a full-grown male on a tiny colt, that's a good image to put in your head of the absurdity of the whole thing and why so many people didn't get it. That this would have been this kind of street theater on purpose. The other thing that I want to pull up is if we have a map here, because uh, I always kind of, it's helpful for me to kind of locate this in a space and where it was. Jesus is coming from over here. This is the Mount of Olives here. And then you see this is the way to Bethany. And he's coming up to the Temple Mount right here. Sorry if I'm blocking uh, more of you from seeing it. But all of this triumphal entry isn't here in Jerusalem. It's on the way. He's out here. And one of the things that's important to note about that is that Jesus' message would not have been terribly uh, popular with people that were living in Jerusalem. Because the people that lived in Jerusalem were the people that were feeding off of the religious system that existed. So when Jesus says the way that we're doing this religious system is abhorrent to God, that is celebrated by people that live in the countryside. Yeah, stick it to the man. That's right. When you get into the city, you are directly threatening people's lives that live there and how they're used to living. So this whole triumphal entry isn't in Jerusalem with all the people. This is the people that are on the way, and they recognize that there's something in Jesus and who he is. And that can also help to pull out. Usually we juxtapose these two things, uh, which we'll look at in a second, I think is, is significant, is that we say, you know, they cried out for Barabbas. If you're kind of unfamiliar with the story, Jesus, a week later, is arrested. And once he's arrested, they have, during Passover, they release one prisoner. And so they put up Jesus, who was arrested the night before, having done no crime other than some trumped-up kind of rabble-rousing charges. And then you have Barabbas, who literally killed a man. He's a zealot who killed a Roman centurion. And they say, who should we release? And a lot of times we say, how fickle are these people? They cheered him there, triumphal entry, and now they're calling for the release of Barabbas. No, it's a different population. The people that are in the city have different vested interests than the people that live outside of the city. Something that is very much true in our country still to this day. It's been true throughout all time. There are different realities that happen around the world. And what works for some, doesn't always work for others. doesn't land in the same way. The other thing, and this is kind of going back to what I was talking about, popular culture and the way that it would have played in. Um, I'm going to read this section from a commentary. This is uh, Ched Meyer's commentary, Binding the Strongman, uh, which we kind of use throughout. But one of the things that he pulls in is the way that Greek tragedies were written. There's this one theme that was used, and some of the most famous were 300 years before the time of Jesus, they're called a hyperchemae. And, and listen to this quote. Uh, this would have been in a Greek tragedy, so in a play. It said, a hyperchemae consisted of a joyful scene that involves the chorus and sometimes other characters, takes the form of a dance, procession, or lyrics expressing confidence and happiness, and occurs just before the catastrophic climax of the play. The hyperchemae emphasizes, by way of contrast, the crushing impact of the tragic incident. It is a sudden outburst of joy, more or less ecstatic, 
not destined to be realized. And it's fascinating to see that when Mark is writing this gospel, he is not existing in like a kind of chamber. I'm thinking of like minority report with like the beans that see, like he's not in a vat of goo under fluorescent lights transcribing this. He is a person that lived in a culture and is using cultural understandings to link into this story of Jesus. And uh, because one of the things that we, we do have to realize about the gospel is not every story is included. So the inclusion of this entry is on purpose. It's there for a reason. And so what it requires us as the reader now, especially all these decades and millennia and, and cultures later, is to say, why did they include it? Why is it there? Um, the, the next thing that happened, and I already kind of referenced it before, is that when Jesus comes back, so he leaves, he goes to the Temple Mount, kind of scopes the scheme. He leaves. On the way back, he sees a fig tree. The fig tree is it's leafy, it's green. There should be figs there um, because of the appearance of the tree. But it is interesting, it's not the season for figs. Jesus is like, can you believe this thing? No figs. He curses the tree, and when they come back, the fig tree is dead. All the leaves are gone. Um, it does inspire. If you're familiar, you know the Westboro Baptist Church? They uh, protest everything. That's kind of their religion. Um, my favorite is the counter-protesters of the, uh, the Westboro Baptist. And this passage inspired my favorite counter-protest sign of all time. Um, because it addresses the insanity of it, and it's biblically accurate. Yeah. Jesus is real mad at that fig tree. Um, so Jesus is coming back to the temple at this point. He curses the fig tree on the way, and this is where um, the action really ramps up. I want to look at Mark 11, verses 15 through 17. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but it's been made, but you have made it a den of robbers. So uh, a couple of things to, to do, because anytime like we've had a guest here and they're an author, and we're like, hey, their books are for sale after church, it's always like, Please no one knock that table over, okay? Because there is this idea that, oh, what Jesus is so mad about is they're selling merch at church. Like, you can't sell merchandise. That's really the sin. That's the problem, which is a fascinating interpretation that makes sense when you live in a capitalistic, consumeristic society. Obviously, that's what we think the sin is. But if you look culturally what was happening, that there were money changers there was a logical thing that had to happen. Remember what I said, this is Passover. So people are coming from all over. They don't all have, and let me take a step back, the temple has its own specific currency that you have to purchase the animals that you are gonna sacrifice there to be kind of religiously pure. So you can't just bring your money from somewhere else and buy the doves, the sheep, whatever animal it is that you're purchasing there. You have to exchange your money and then purchase with this other currency that. If you've ever traveled to another country, it fills people with a lot of anxiety, like what kind of exchange rate am I getting? 
because you aren't in control. You don't know all the kind of larger economic factors going on and like, is this a fair amount? I don't know. Just give me other money. And when you lock into it that this is a religious experience, it creates this opportunity where people will ask less questions. And what has happened, why the money changers are specifically named, is that they are exploiting people that are coming to participate in religious practices by jacking up the rates. The other thing that's interesting that you note that Jesus turns over is the dove table. And you're like, do you hate magicians too, Jesus? Like, what's going on with that particular thing? Doves are specifically listed because uh, all the way back in the Old Testament, what I love about the Bible is that it has this way where if you have the sacrificial system, it says, but what about people that can't afford it? So from the very beginning, they kind of build in protections for people that don't have the economic resources to have a relationship with God. From the beginning, there is an indictment of the prosperity gospel. That this is not a good news for just those that make lots of money that clearly God is with you. No, we have allowances where you can just buy a dove. But they have been changing the rates with which they charge for the doves. And that has been steadily climbing and climbing and climbing. And again, if you think about kind of like city mouse, country mouse type, it's like, well, you can normalize this price here in the city, but that is highway robbery to people that are coming from other areas. So these are specific areas that Jesus is addressing. Now, what is Jesus saying and what's the impact of these two lines? It was supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. To do that, I want to look at um, something that I love. If you are watching a movie or a TV program and you've ever heard a song or music come on, and it's a song you know. It's not like an original score, all that. What's fascinating is that TV writers or producers, they're able to tap into all of your emotions linked to a song back here and put it into this program. They get all your emotions and they didn't have to earn them. Some of the popularity, I'm not saying all the popularity, but some of the popularity of The Mandalorian, no spoilers, don't do that, but is because they're taking this Star Wars property. So there's immediate nostalgia the moment you see a Mandalorian that the show didn't have to earn. It just got it. I want to show you two movie trailers that are in the last couple of years, and I want you to see how they use this kind of nostalgia. Uh, the first, yeah. I see trees of green. Red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces of people going by. imagine that same trailer without that soundtrack. Do you get how, like, Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World is just a deeply emotive song. 
And so when you put it over something, they're really trying to capture a nostalgia for so many people. Like, hey, we brought Pokemon to life. And you pair those things together, it has a double impact that it wouldn't have without either of these. Also, I am loving just personally, again, that my youngest son's in here. And he's going to tell my older son, like, well, you was born. You were in church. He's like, no, they show Pokemon up there. It's nuts. Okay. Same song, another trailer. Look at the usage of what a wonderful world is in this one. Very different experience, yeah? This is actually a very popular kind of tactic and tool in a lot of trailers is that you take a song that's really upbeat or positive, you play it with like darker, I don't know, music. I'm immediately going to expose myself as an idiot. Minor keys, is that right? A couple of nods. You do that and you get to use the same emotion, but you get to disrupt it in the same way that you're interested in it because of what it's doing to your positive motions that are being played with intentionally. And the reason why I bring that up is this, the reason we are talking about before is that Jesus is able to, in speaking to this crowd of people, when he says it was supposed to be a house of prayer, but it's a den of thieves, he's playing the same song in two different keys, in one line. He's intentionally disrupting their understanding of things. And this isn't something that, again, Without the internet, where, like someone said recently, when you think of how quickly memes and cultural moments are hitting us, we forget things that, like, before would have been, like, a three- to five-month thing. And they're just over because the rate of which we can share and repeat and wear out certain things. So our kind of cultural moment is that things move really quickly. But in a pre-literate society where you have these certain stories that are, few of them are written down and people are kind of sharing them orally and there's a whole oral tradition where other people are listening to them so that they can also replicate these stories in the future, that this makes up almost the entirety of their life and worldview. It's all their music, all their movies, all their TV shows, right? Whereas right now, people are like, oh, did you see this show? And you're like, I haven't even heard of that show. I didn't even know it was a show that there's a different cultural moment that when Jesus is speaking into this, it's things that would have been deeply known and very familiar, top of mind. Um, and the reason why I bring that up is because when I was in high school, I still look back and laugh. And they're like, here's this book, Animal Farm. And they're like, here's the symbolism of it. And I'm like, how do you know? Maybe there's writing a story about animals on a farm. Um, <laughs> no, when Jesus is saying that, especially in a culture where they're memorizing the Torah, 
that not only would you have recognized that line, but you would have linked it within a larger framework. So I want to look at those, those two lines, and see where they come from. The first is you've turned something that should have been a house of prayer. This is pulled from Isaiah 56, looking at verses 6 and then 7. The foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Um, if we could, and sorry to, to throw that, if we can go back to that map in the picture. Um, yeah, so this, that kind of red striped box up here, this is the actual temple. And one of the things to note about the temple is that here you have the Gentile court. So if you weren't Jewish, this was as far as you could go. And then here you have the court of women. So if you were a woman, that, a Jewish woman, that's as far as you could go. And then you had the men's court. And if you were a man, that's as far as you could go. And then behind the curtain, you had the Holy of Holies, where only the Levite priest could go to actually offer the sacrifices on behalf of the people. So it was an incredibly tiered uh, arrangement. One of the things that Jesus seems to be condemning is not only is there price gouging, not only is there use of economic benefit at people's kind of religious vulnerability, but there's also this idea that the whole reason for this, the house of prayer for all nations, was the inclusivity of what this place should be. And that is also in violation, that you are actually keeping people out here through economic means, but in so many ways you have not seen and understood the heart of God, a point of which is further emphasized in Jesus' crucifixion. One of the things that is told is that what tears? The curtain that divides the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, that this thing rips and tears. What Jesus is doing is to be utterly inclusive from the very beginning. So when he says a house of prayer, it's not just like, yeah, we should be praying here, not selling things. No, He's making an allusion to the house of prayer is very much linked to a welcome of the foreigner and an acceptance and embrace of them as you would with people your own family. What have you turned it into? A den of thieves. Which, by the way, I want to make an Aladdin 2 joke, but that movie's called King of Thieves, not Den of Thieves. If we could go to Jeremiah, we're going to look at Jeremiah 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, if you do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incest to Baal and fall other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. What is interesting is that not only is Jesus making a scriptural reference to say this is what you've turned this place into, but he's saying it directly to the people that are sure that they are keeping it this way. 
They're not keeping it the detestable house of robbers. They're keeping it as a house of prayer. His indictment to you is you have failed at your one job. Your one responsibility is the place where you have utterly failed. And not to people that assume like, yeah, we've done some shady things. We're getting called out on it. They are positive. They are doing it the right way. This is why after this session, so Jesus, which again, think about the, the, the picture of this. Jesus walks into the temple, which even me, if I had been there at that time, I'd been like, yeah, it's pretty messed up. We should really like have some conversations and put some pretty aggressive temple reform through the legislative wing. Jesus comes in and just starts knocking stuff over whipping out the money changers, get out of here. And then he preaches a sermon. He teaches them, this is why I did what I did. This is how this place has failed. And after this, it says they are sure they have to kill him. Now, sympathy for the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because I think there's a little Pharisee and Sadducee in all of us. I really believe the Pharisees and Sadducees' decision to kill Jesus is out of their mistaken belief that it's the perfect way to protect the people. Look, if I was a Pharisee and Sadducee, maybe this isn't the perfect system. Well, what Jesus is talking about, this total overhaul, this is going to be seen as a coup by the Romans, and we're going to get squashed. We're going to get militarily destroyed by the Romans if we consider this. It is better to just kill this one guy than to have all of us die. And what I think is at the root of that is there is a way of thinking about other people that is unnecessarily parental. Are you with me? There's a way where we view other people and we say, well, the greatest threat to them is if they have this information, they're going to make bad decisions with it. So let's just limit their ability to receive this information. And there's something within us that wants to protect people by harming others. By not allowing this voice to be here and to say, hey, what is going on there? And Jesus has to be expelled to keep the system in operation. It's no wonder they had to kill him. What I love about Cascade, this particular church, is that everyone has a different and unique story. But one thing I think is that you, you couldn't really be in a worship space like this if you weren't willing to address your beliefs in some way. If you weren't willing to wrestle with them in some way. And some of you have spent years wrestling with your belief, with your belief on who is God, who is Jesus. What is Christianity in the world today? And to be a part of a particular worshiping community that does things in a particular way and to leave that to find another community that does things in a different way so that the first community is like, I don't know that they're saved anymore. That all the conversations about you are in like hushed tones and out of lots of concern. You don't get there unless you're willing to wrestle with it and hear other information and sit with it and to say, what is God doing in this place? One of the aspects that we see in Jesus and we understand about the nature of God is that God does not specialize in control. If God was interested in control, then God is a failure as God. Are you with me? If God wanted to control us to say, this is how you bet live best and safe and I want to make sure to protect all of you and be here, God is a terrible, terrible God. 
because God allows way too much freedom and opportunity to question and deny God's very existence. I think that this is tied, although not seemingly at the the beginning, to the message of Jesus, that Jesus is inviting people to see and engage in the real world that exists, not to escape this world, to go to another world where they can be safe, but exist in this world with critical thought and minds to say, what is God doing here and now? And is it possible, in the best and the brightest of our system, creating this perfect Jewish temple system that we've actually lost the plot. That we should have been an inclusive, welcoming place where we're inviting everyone to come in, but we've checked their Jewishness at the door and we've restricted access to understanding who this God is to the benefit of all people. What this means for us is that are we willing to ask questions about our current reality in life? Are we willing to say, Who am I? What cultures and systems am I living in now? What things am I doing on a day-to-day basis now that need to be questioned, that need to be overturned in some way, big and small? And if you've been in a long process of overturning, it's okay to grab a breath too. It's okay to take a deep breath and say, I've done a lot of overturning. Jesus didn't just keep overturning tables. He stopped to teach as well. He gave some people in the room some breath and opportunity to see and to learn and to move together. But ultimately, settling on what is the way and what is the practice and how can we arrive in the place has not served humanity very well throughout the generations. And if we understand a God through Jesus calling us ever forward to look again and see the ways where this thing we created to be a blessing to all people is actually a curse, This is deeply spiritual work that we're invited to today, here and now. And let me say specifically, in this place and in this church, we don't go have a victory parade every Sunday that we do Cascade and be like, man, nailed it again. We're saying, what don't we see? What aren't we aware of? What ways do we need to continue to grow and evolve as a worshiping community? Because we're we're chasing after where is God leading us to the peaceful thriving of all people not just creating a thing that makes us all feel safe and comfortable. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the power of the Bible. God, to comfort and to disrupt. To challenge and to bring peace. And God, I pray that we would hold both of these things in ourselves. That God, when... Scripture only exists to challenge our every assumption. God, we grow weary. And when the Bible only exists to bring us peace and comfort, we grow complacent. God, may we be challenged by you. And God, may we see the greater lesson of how you engage in this world that was time-bound and time-sensitive. That it was embedded in a culture that was. God, may we also be embedded in this time, in this place, in this cultural moment. God, to see more of your welcoming inclusivity come to earth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.